Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 149 of Historically Thinking. My guest today is John Connolly, professor of history and director of the Institute for Eastern European, Eurasian, and Slavic Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Past books by Professor Connolly include Captive University, The Sovietization of East German, Czech, and Polish Higher Education, 1945 to 1956, and From Enemy to Brother, The Revolution in Catholic Teaching on the Jews. His most recent book is From Peoples into Nations, A History of Eastern Europe, published in January 2020, and the subject of our conversation today. John Connolly, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. So, um, regular listeners uh, will have experienced in episode 148 a discussion uh, about the Congo with Robert Harms. And I couldn't help thinking, um, as I was reading this book, right after reading a book about the Congo, uh, this actually was done sequentially for once, I couldn't help thinking of the similarities in this, um, that uh, well-educated people um, uh, who speak English uh, really know as little about Eastern Europe as the Congo. Hmm. Um, It's murky and um, confusing and really opaque. And the difference would be is that often well-educated people think they know something about Eastern Europe. And that's actually a problem, at least with the Congo, everyone knows they're ignorant. Um, But Eastern Europe, people think that, oh, they've always been fighting. Um, They've always been like that, Um, blah, 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 blah. So I want to put that at the beginning because it it seems to me as we often often quote Mark Twain on this uh, podcast, the biggest problem is with the things that we know that just aren't so. And the few things that we know about Eastern Europe, um, I realize now reading your book, usually just aren't so. Would you tend to agree with that? Well, I've, I've been working on the region so long, it's difficult to recreate what I thought before <laughs> I did about it. Well, you, you, but as we were saying and we were chatting beforehand, this, is, this book really comes out of teaching. And I'm yeah. sure that, you know, uh, 18-year-olds, the very intelligent 18-year-olds you get at Berkeley come with some sort of one or two sort of preconceptions about Eastern Europe that reflect something that their elders have said to them. Well, I I think that part of the problem derives from the fact that it seems so complicated, right? So people know something about France and Germany and Britain and Russia, but then these lands between Germany and and Russia, there seem to be so many of them speaking so many different languages, Mm. having such complex histories, so many political parties that it's just difficult to... To, to keep them straight. And so people, for that reason alone, they tend to throw up their hands often. And, um, yeah. you know, and, 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 uh, and then, yeah. And then when they realize the intermixture of, of, of languages and ethnicities sort of who are, uh, have been placed in a food processor, the divine food processor and, and hit high, um, it, it becomes even more confusing. I mean, it's not, there are no tidy lines on the map, you quickly realize. Yeah, you know, so what, what I do when I, when I teach is I usually try to simplify at the very beginning. I, I, I say that mm-hmm. basically um, the majority of the, the nations, the peoples in the region are speakers of Slavic languages, and then I tell them what Slavic languages are. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they're, they're actually very close to each other. So people from the region can often understand each other without much preparation. For example, Czechs and Poles, Poles and Ukrainian uh, Czechs and uh, and, and Croats uh, and so on. So I, I start from that that that, that basic uh, linguistic commonality, and then I and then I uh, you know I talk a bit about the what I find intriguing, and I always found intriguing is the common historical sensitivity, the fact that. Uh, regardless if you're from you know Kosovo or further north in Poland, uh, people have a, a, a very strong sense of, of uh, the presence of the past in their everyday lives mm. and, and the importance of politics and economics to what they do. Uh, so people are and, and culture above all culture to, to, to their daily lives. So this is a it, it's it's a kind of a feature that you find uh, going from Poland in the north down south toward. Uh, former Yugoslavia that that gives it coherence and and when you say those two things that the peoples tend to be uh, of, of more or less one linguistic groups there are, there are a few exceptions uh, above all the Hungarians and the Romanians um, and that people understand each other uh, have a common experience of, of the past and, and sensitivity to, to to history that helps then um, I think put people on the map and then you can start from there and then you can start talking about deeper differences. Like the Germanic speakers that seem to be scattered across everywhere, like raisins in a pudding or something like that. Well, that was a result of history. Uh, you know, this is the, the yeah. people ask is why why is the region uh, so complex? Why are there so many peoples intermingled? Especially before the Second World War, you had Germans and Czechs in Bohemia. You had a lot of Germans living in the land of Poland, and of course, Yugoslavia was was a patchwork of ethnicity. And um, Romania also featured. Numerous ethnicities. So uh, again, I go back a, a bit a bit deeper into history and simply explain that when the original groups moved into the region, speaking different languages, they didn't have a sense of nationality or the need for a nation state, and so they intermingled quite quite naturally. And there were Polish kings who invited Germans to build cities, and Polish kings who invited Jews also to um, um, to live in cities to essentially make wealth for them. Um, there were. Polish kings who married, who were of foreign ethnicity, queens as well. There was little sense before the late 18th century of, of this even mattering. So it was very natural for peoples um, to mix. And the thing about Eastern Europe is that it's between, um, people call it Eastern Europe, but really it's a land uh, between, or lands between other places. So you had, it was a crossroads over, over many centuries between lands further east, uh, where the Slavs originally came from, and the, the Hungarians and the Germans came from further east. And lands further west that were that were that were settled more that were settled settled earlier, and and so those lands tend to be less, less complex. Um, so if you go to the west of Eastern Europe, you have a lot of German speakers historically, and to the east there's 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 a large amount of, of Turkish and uh, Russian speakers. Whereas the lands between were this crossroads of um, imperial and economic and military activity over many centuries. Mm -hmm. The um, when you put it like that, it sounds to me like sort of northern Italy. I was trying to think, is, is there anything particularly distinctive about Eastern Europe that I can't find in other parts of even just Europe? Let's let, leave the rest of the world out Northern of it. Um, but at least in Northern Europe, you, you have a crossroad. Well, Northern Italy in some ways belongs to the region I'm talking about because it, it itself is a crossroads. Yeah. And there, there you have actually Italian um, bordering on German and Slavic settlements. So it, you know, the, the Italian parts of the former Habsburg Empire in some ways belong to the region. Um, I would go further to, to, mm -hmm. to the to, to the west, uh, the old French kingdom, and then uh, the lands of, of, of that became um, the, the German Empire, the lands of Britain, um, the lands of Spain, uh, the Netherlands. Those are areas mm -hmm. that 
have seen much less of this kind of uh, movement of population. They're much less. Yeah, certainly, certainly since the early Middle Ages. I mean, you can make a case that, say, the Netherlands um, in the early Middle Ages, and by which I mean like 700 to 1,000. Um, my goodness, it, it's pretty much the same kind of chaos. Uh, but they're all they are Germanic speakers. Right. Um, in the way that there's these are Slavic speakers uh, stretched across uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm saying this to give the idea that this is not a. We might have the idea from the 19th and the 20th century. This is a particularly tumultuous. This is a uniquely tumultuous area of the world, and I think that's um, that's well, unfair. I, what I say is distinctive is is that um, the, the peoples or the later nations of the region are relatively small in comparison to to the peoples to the to the east, the Russian people then you know empire um and to the west the G- germanic uh, the germans if you will uh, speakers of german and french are simply much larger and more powerful over time same through the english and 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 the spanish and then later the italians they're much, they're much larger states that had uh for that reason imperial ambitions whereas the east european peoples are tend to tend to be much smaller um especially you know czechs slovaks romanians uh Croats, uh, Serbs, uh, Poles. Poles are among those are the largest. Hungarians. Uh, so that's distinctive. It, mm-hmm. These these are relatively small peoples uh, wedged in between larger peoples, imperial uh, states. So that's distinctive. And that then meant that they tended mm-hmm. to be the object of history rather than the subject of history. Not making history, but um, but subjected to other peoples and other states. Uh, I huh. That's very nicely put. Um. The one you've already answered this to some extent, but um, back in the, in um, in the in the Balkan Wars in the nineties, um, one used to hear the say, "Well, they've always hated each other." That's just why they, it's just this is this is part of their history. Um, it's one of those sort of deep and knowing appeals to history that gets history wrong um, because, of course, they haven't always hated each other. No, it's, it's absurd right? to talk to talk in those terms. You're absolutely right. There's, there's, yeah. there's no uh, you know deep uh, hatred. Um, what there is uh, indeed uh, going deep into the past is a sense of distinctiveness. So there was a sense, for example, among Polish speakers a thousand years ago, that there were German speakers who were different from them. In fact, the word in Polish uh, for German means people who don't speak, people without a mouth. In other words, people who are in- unintelligible. Uh, so there was a sense that you were running, <laughs> that you were running, and you know there there, there have been these senses of. Ethnic and linguistic distinctiveness, uh, tribal distinctiveness, going 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 very far back, um, and and sometimes attached to that was was a sense of resentment or a sense that one large people was discriminatory. The Germans were thought of as being aggressive by by some Slavic peoples over time, but it's really only in the twentieth century with the, with the creation of nation states that you have a sense that within the boundaries of a nation state should be one nation and that other peoples are somehow. Um, Subject to the whims of that of that of that greater, larger, larger people, that then brings forth not not directly hatred, but fear, and out of the fear, then then, mm-hmm. then grows you know the, uh, often violence and, and and violent activities of states, and then after that point, one can perhaps talk about hatred, but that's only when when, when the conflict has gone has has become a military or a civil war, uh, like like you saw in, in, in Yugoslavia in the early nineteen nineties. So. I would say uh, one needs yeah. a, a more complex dis- discussion of the matter, but you're absolutely right to say that there's something like an ancient hatred is absurd. Yeah, um, it's it's a particularly annoying uh, absurdity, given that it's always uh, it, one of those things that pretends to be based on a deep historical knowledge or deep historical realities. Those are some of the worst. Um, what was the big question that you began this book well, with? Uh, 
I would say that what I began the book with uh, was was a curiosity more than a than, than a question. Um, so it, the book began before I began even teaching um, the subject, and the book grew out of my teaching. Uh, so before the teaching was mm-hmm. travel to the region and curiosity, and and I was. Uh, during the Cold War, the late 1970s, I was simply very curious about a region of Europe that seemed beyond knowledge, be, you know, beyond the can of people living in the West. But nevertheless, to be to belong to history, we knew that if you grow up in the U.S., you know that there's something like Poland because there are a lot of Americans of Polish descent. You know about uh, Czechoslovakia. You know about Yugoslavia. So I began um, going, and, and what we knew was that this was an area ruled by communist. Um, uh, dictatorship, um, which we were told, and I think is largely true, was an imperial kind of dictatorship brought from the Soviet Union into Eastern Europe. So I was interested in what my curiosity was, what it was, what was it like to live in a place that was under constant assault politically, where people felt uh, they, they, they um, quote unquote, did not enjoy personal liberties, which was symbolized by the Berlin Wall. So I actually went past the, behind the Berlin Wall and got to know people and uh, got to know what it was like uh, living under um, the Soviet imperialism of that time. And what struck me was that in places like Poland in particular, um, made me even more curious about the region, was that people were extremely sensitive and knowledgeable about their own histories in a way that Americans were not. Mm-hmm. Very deep histories. I remember one friend of mine telling me that there was a certain date in 1420 where she actually knew that, that, that not only the date, but the time of day where something had occurred. And the idea of an American that, you know, 600 years previously, you know, the exact date and, and the time of day something occurred was extraordinary. Um, but even more important for, for Poles or Czechs or Serbs is their culture, uh, right? So the, the idea that they're, they're linked together by a language and a set of mores and a cuisine and a literature and a poetry and a set of songs that is theirs and distinctive to them and that is extremely precious and that has been under assault um, in the past. So... Um, what it means in the 20th century, this time, the time of great violence, is that um, you know, people, people, people had a sense of history being present to them. Um, I was thinking today, it's a bit like having history as a person in your living room, right? Something that's constantly there and ignore that you're always talking about, that in some ways is even talking to you, knocking on the door, giving you no peace. Um, and I, I found that experience uh, quite simply fascinating. So, so the, you know, the question, I guess the, the most basic question I have is, you know, what is life like for um, people living in the 20th century under that, that, with that kind of memory, um, with, that, with that kind of sensitivity to the past? And, and, and from that basically un, un, unfolds the, the story I tell in the book. So um, it's, it's, it's um, you know, quite simply um, recounting of what um, one historian Jacques Rupnik calls the other Europe. It's a Europe we tend not to know a lot about, but it, it's, it's at least half of Europe. Uh, and it's, it's at least as fascinating as, as the Western parts we know more about. Mm-hmm. Let's um, discuss your, you have a definition of ethnic nationalism, which is, I think, important to your book. Um, it's a sort of one of the sort of a conceptual thread that runs through it. Um, what, what is your definition of ethnic nationalism and what is it, um, what, what isn't it and why is it important? Well, you know, there, there's this general sense that there's a, a, a Western nationalism, which is a so-called civic nationalism based in a, in common citizenship, sense of political rights, um, the sort of, um, nationalism that we find in the U S where 1776 is the beginning of our nation, right? That's, that's the common sense. Whereas in mm-hmm. Eastern Europe, um, the common view is what they what, what one has is ethnic nationalism, which means nationalism based in the ethnicity, 
meaning um, culture, language, shared history. You are born into an ethnic nation. You can opt into a civic nation, right? And so 1776 was a moment of the creation of the American of, of, of the United States of America as, as a nation. Um, and after that point, anybody who, who wanted to become an American citizen could do that. Whereas the idea in Eastern Europe, and this is, this is I think, a, an idea that is extremely compelling, is that the nation has always existed. Um, the only way to enter it is to be born into it. It's, it's if your parents are Polish or Czech. There's no way to enter from the outside. Um, the, the, the focus, uh, there's no beginning to this nation. So when Poland was reestablished in 1918, the idea was not that Poland was being founded in 1918 the way that the United States was being founded in 1776, but that Poland was being confirmed. It was being, in some ways, its historic right was being recognized by the international community. Um, so there's no, there's no absolute distinction between these two kinds of nationhood. Uh, there is, of course, a sense of citizenship in Poland or in, in the Czech Republic as well. But what I say is why ethnic nationhood is so strong in Eastern Europe is, is because it's been under attack. That's, that's the simplest explanation, um, that you get ethnic nationhood where the ethnicity has been under assault. And in all cases in Eastern Europe, it has been under assault from imperial powers, uh, from Ottoman Turkey, from, from the Russian Empire, from various German states uh, at various points in history. And that is why this consciousness is so strong. Uh, but it's not unique to Eastern Europe. I'm currently a um, scholar uh, in residence in Northern Ireland. Uh, Ulster has something very similar to this, uh, the, the sense of uh, the sensitivity to history, the knowledge of history, the, um, the belief that you're born into, into a group, Catholic or Protestant, is, 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 is virtually the same in Ulster, what you have in Eastern Europe is you have a series of Ulsters, one upon the other, with slight mixing of, mm -hmm. of, of, of um, religions and, and, and languages and the like. But it's, 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 it's very similar. Um, ethnic nationhood is not destiny. It, it can shift to civic nationhood when the ethnicity is no longer under threat. Um, and you see in Germany, by the way, has this, I'll just conclude with it. Germany is actually the origin of, of the ideology of ethnic nationhood. Uh, German philosophy and Germany itself as a state has been shifting to civic nationhood in the last uh, generation or so with new definitions of who is German that were unthinkable uh, 50 or so, 50 years ago or so. So this this can shift, uh, but the bottom line is that you know ethnic nationhood uh, is strong when ethnicity is under attack. Um, and when mm -hmm. Let me underline that because um, I think it's 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 a it's a great insight. Um, so German ideas of ethnic nationalism um, become when, I mean, who we could we could argue about this whether people there are certain people at the time of the Reformation who have some idea of Germanness. Um, Luther talks about the German people uh, usually in complimentary uh, remarks. We Germans are not heads and so on. Um, but it's really with the French imperial yeah. assault yeah. on Germany. On the German states that you have, uh, we have to band together yeah. and be Germans in a way that's sort of incomprehensible to Luther, who sees himself. I'm a yeah. Saxon. Uh, yes, um, the founder of the German the German language in some ways. Um, yes, no, I I I, uh, I agree entirely. I mean, it has it has the German uh, German nationalism grows in its modern form out of the front out of the experience of, of French imperialism, the French Revolution. The Germans themselves were victims of imperialism, right, from 1792 to 1814, mm -hmm. yeah. 1815. Uh, and German nationalism grows out of the experience of being subject to the whims of another state, strong state. 
uh, in the consciousness of not having yeah. uh, their own state. And out of that grew uh, a linguistic nationalism. Um, you know, the, so the answer to the question after the Holy Roman Empire uh, was dissolved in 1806, the, the only form Germany supposedly had was, in, was its language. Where Germany, Germany is where the German language is spoken, and and this this was this was the, the beginnings of the German the modern German national movement, leading ultimately you know in no direct line to the modern German nation state in 1870-71. And East Europeans studied in Germany in those early years of the of the 19th century and imbibed this idea that um, it's language that makes a nation and it's language that gives a, a people a soul, uh, a common purpose in history. Um, a destiny before God. So the, so the German story is inseparable mm -hmm. from the East European story. And I, I make that point very book. Yeah. And you, and you, and you do tell them together. I mean, you see, um, at least Eastern Germany is always part of your story. Yes. And, and Austria um, with the German state historically, part, at least. Partly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's get to that because, um, you, you lay out several sort of key points in, in this history. Um, and, you uh, discuss them as sort of contingent moments and uh, realizing uh, um, that these are moments when ethnic nationalism receives a boost through outside assaults. Um, I guess that's what I, one way of thinking about them. Um, so the first of these is a rather curious one. And, and in many ways, it shows that um, the assault on ethnic, ethnic nations or eth ethnicities in Eastern Europe began before they had language to describe ethnic nationalism. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's Joseph II, the, Joseph, the Emperor Joseph II and his decree. Could you yes, so Joseph that? II uh, ruled from 1780 to 1790 by himself. Before that, he, he ruled uh, for a number of years with his mother, Maria Theresia, but she died in 1780. And he took over and he, was, he had the ambition of, of making his realm of very untidy provinces, the Austrian uh, monarchy of that time, the Habsburg monarchy of that of that time, into a functional state. And he, having traveled in Russia uh, and in Western Europe, he believed that a common language would 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 make for a bureaucracy with a common spirit and for a united kind of populace. And so he decided to, um, by decree, uh, to to cause the functionaries, the, the state servants of his lands, to 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 use to, to use German within three years. So 1781, 1784, um, and this ran into rather mild opposition in the Czech lands, where there was a, a, a where uh, for complicated reasons it tended to be the peasant population that spoke German, but it run ran into virulent opposition in, in Hungary. I'm sorry, in Hungary, which um, one has to recall was it was a huge space in those days. The Hungarian kingdom historically included mm -hmm. all today Slovakia, much of Romania, uh, all of Croatia, parts of Serbia, um, and um, there was a there was a very self historically self conscious elite, the Hungarian nobility throughout those lands, very 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 complex lands that that spoke Hungarian, but didn't tend to even use Hungarian on a, on a daily basis. They they communicated politically and administratively in Latin. Um, but the idea that suddenly they mm -hmm. so if Joseph the second if his tutor had convinced him that Latin was really a great universal language, well, things would have been different. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, it's, I guess so. You'd have m many more Latin teachers, uh, you know, op operating. Yeah, you would. I, I'm just. I mean, it, it it is interesting that amongst the poles, they had always used Latin. They had pride themselves in use on speaking Latin and conversationally. Increasingly, the Hungarians did 
Well, the Hungarians Hungarian would have speak, What's that? tended to speak French. They, they used Latin, uh, you know, across the realm because it, it was an effective means of, of communicating. But uh, what they really preferred yeah. speaking was French, actually. Um, and they knew Hungarian, but they didn't value it. They didn't yeah. write in it. Okay. And but by Joseph II, by by decreeing that suddenly they will they will be German speakers, caused this concern that they would disappear from history as a people. <laughs> and people people uh, there, there were petitions that rained in upon upon the monarch. Uh, he ignored them all because he believed in reason. He, he didn't find them to make any sense. But the, basically what the, what Hungarians were saying was that you're going to destroy us as a people. We're going to disappear from history uh, the way that uh, the Etruscans did. I mean, they had, they had also, themselves also a deep historical memory. They knew that there had been peoples in the past. If you read the Bible, you know this, that, that, that existed and then disappeared from the pages of history. They didn't want to be that kind of people. So a movement emerged to defend the Hungarian language, Hungarian language, culture, and out of that grew then a movement that ultimately uh, gained for Hungary um, an autonomous status in the Habsburg Empire um, less than a century later. So that was an incredibly – and this this movement within Hungary then forcing uh, Croats and Slovaks to learn Hungarian then caused counter-movements to emerge. So, so what the Hungarian movement did is threatened uh, Slovak, Croat, Romanian ethnicity and thereby uh, helped launch national movements in those regions as well. So in each case – Go ahead. And then the Czechs and the Slovaks, did they then follow from that? Did they follow on that model or were they, did they, did they eventually feel, feel well, similarly Slovaks, threatened? Well, uh, the Slovaks, they, they actually were part of, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, uh, they were part of Hungary. So they, they, they felt, so they're at least oh, they were, some sorry. of them. I mean, some, some Slovaks chose to, to become Hungarian. It was no problem. This Hungarian nationalism was not discriminatory. Yeah. The Czechs, however, they, they, they lived uh, in the western part of the, of, of the Habsburg lands, uh, in, in what was called Bohemia, now the Czech Republic or the Czech lands. And in, in, on the, in the border areas of that area uh, was a very large German population, uh, later known as Sudeten Germans or the Sudetenland. And so Bohemia was, became a contested space between German and Czech speakers. Uh, but what Joseph II's measures did is, is caused a very, very small group. They're, they're the, the elite, the, the, uh, for complicated historical reasons, the nobility in, in Bohemia, was either a national or German, uh, and, and the and some of them uh, were very old and still had some some connection to Czech and Slavic cultures, but generally speaking, they were a national. So there was a mostly middle class uh, Czech national movement grew much more gradually than in, in Hungary and with fewer administrative means, and then began but did something very similar, which was they they, they recreated the uh, the Czech language. Uh, they had to write dictionaries in both cases in Hungary. And the Czech lands, they had to write complete, and in Poland as well. In these years, had to write completely new new dictionaries, uh, and and then contested um, their rights against the local Germans. And and Bohemia was, was, although the Germans were heavy in the borders, they were living in other places as well. Like Prague, for example, was essentially a German, especially at the elite level, a German-speaking city in 1800. Uh, and what happened? Czech lower classes mm-hmm. gradually created the schools and the museums and the libraries. Uh, to to contest that space and the the, the cafes the, you know the um, the businesses and by 1848 um, the Czech presence was very strong in, in in Bohemia so the Czech story is, is it's a parallel story but it's a bit different from the story in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Let's jump forward to the revolutions of 1848. Um, this is what are, what are the fallouts of that for? So for 1848 is, is this fascinating moment uh, in, in uh, the early months of 1848 um, from, from, from France down uh, to Naples and all the way to the east to, to Bucharest and, and throughout the Polish lands and, and German lands. 
um, peoples rose up in cities mostly and overthrew um, monarchs, so, so kings, uh, princes and the like. And within a few weeks, we're talking about establishing constitutional rule. Uh, so being loyal not, not to a monarch, but to a to, 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 um, common set of laws. Uh, they were going to create um, liberal democracy of a sort. Uh, a limited kind, but but a you know a very promising and interesting kind. And so, what happens in Bohemia and in Hungary when um, the local liberals, so those were the people in favor of democracy in those days, set about uh, writing these constitutions? Is that in Bohemia, it turned out that the Czechs and Germans had very different ideas of what their future would be. The the Germans believed that Bohemia was right in the center of Germany. And historically, it was. So what we now call the Czech Republic was historically in the center of the Holy Roman Empire, which was political Germany. And so the Germans living there thought we will be part of Germany. And there was a movement to create a democratic Germany in 1848. So they they voted, uh, in essence, uh, the German parts of Bohemia, Bohemia sent their delegates to Frankfurt, whereas the Czechs said, no, we are, we are part of Austria as a band of small nations, Slavic nations. They thought, And there was a Slavic conference that was called to Prague in 1848. So what happened uh, when democracy became a possibility, popular rule in Bohemia is that it turned out that the, t- the two groups, uh, the two major uh, ethnic groups, as we would call them, had very different ideas. Um, and that permitted then the Habsburg monarch to reassert, re- reassert authority. So there was an uprising in June of 1848 huh. and the Habsburg army uh, essentially um, reconquered that space. Hungary, um, Hungarian situation was 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 more fraught, uh, much more violent. Um, it was much more complex. Um, the Hungarian yeah. elite also uh, created its own constitution in April of 1848, which was recognized by the Habsburgs. Uh, but then uh, the Habsburgs had second thoughts, and they banded together with the other nationalities in the Hungarian lands against the Hungarian elite. Uh, with they banded together with the Croats and and, and uh, Romanians and. Um, and Serbs, and to some extent Slovaks. Um, And what I argue in the book is that um, because of this dissension about what to do with the Hungarian space, whether it should be a Hungarian liberal state or whether it should be a band of autonomous entities, uh, what we see in 1848 are the earliest cases of ethnic cleansing in Central Europe. Uh, And in fact, bordering on genocide, uh, when uh, Hungarian and Serb and Romanian and German forces met in Transylvania, presently in Romania, but then part of the Hungarian kingdom, uh, what what followed from that was the cleansing of villages and sometimes the whole whole scale murder of populations. So there was a, there was a sense in both of those spaces uh, that um, when if one did not possess political power, that one's eth- eth- ethnic um, existence was under threat. Um, so 1848, and, and there too, so similar to Bohemia, the Habsburgs reasserted control, um, but in, unlike Bohemia, they needed the help of a Russian army to do so. Uh, so this is, this is the Hungarian revolution, um, seen by the Hungarians as a cause of democracy and constitutional order, seen by uh, people of the other ethnicities on the Hungarian territory as being an attempt to impose Hungarian rule upon them. So a very sobering end to what was a very hopeful beginning in, in early 1848. And then in 1860s, um, there's a series of events which are perhaps a little, uh, 1848, since it happens in France, we tend to know about it. Um, in, in the, when you take a European civilization course, 
Um, but in the 1860s, there's something that's very particular to the empire. Um, for one thing, they lose to Prussia. I guess they lose right. their bid to be sort of the, the chief right. nation amongst the Germans. Um, and, th- and then, uh, I think as a result of that, uh, uh, that the, uh, they then have to come to a compromise with That's Hungarian right. So elites. what the Habsburgs discovered is that they couldn't rule on – they had no idea to compete with liberalism. They, what what uh, Francis Joseph, the emperor, came into power in 1849, um, after subduing the uprisings in Italy and Bohemia and Hungary, decided that he would rule by himself, essentially uh, helped, by, helped by a few advisors. And he had some good advisors, but this couldn't work. He wasn't uh, that gifted that he could rule this, this very diverse set of territories in an effective way. And he lost some major wars, uh, first to, to France in 1859, and then, as you mentioned, to Germany, to Prussia, and Prussia in 1866. And he couldn't, he couldn't <laughs> it's interesting, it, his, his hand was forced by international finance. He, he couldn't get... Uh, he, he couldn't borrow money for the military uh, unless he promised some kind of representation, some kind of representation, not a democratic one, but one in which uh, the uh, local uh, nobles uh, and perhaps uh, middle classes would be involved in governance. So he, he was forced in 1859, 1860 to call upon the elites of, of the empire, of the empire uh, to come together in Vienna and a representative of the assembly. And out of that grew a sense uh, among the Hungarians who had been defeated in 1849 that uh, they had some um, leverage, some, some bargaining power with the Habsburgs. And you know, to cut a long story short, what they did in the course of the next five years is they worked out an, a deal with, uh, with the emperor uh, to split control of the Habsburg lands into east and west. So the eastern area was the Hungarian kingdom, and the western area was essentially Austria, Bohemia, parts of Northern Italy and, and Poland um, became known to specialists as Cisleithania, that's the western part, and Translithania, that's the eastern part. And um, the Lytha was the river dividing Austria and Hungary. But from that moment, only from 1867, when the Habsburgs cut a deal with the Hungarians, can we speak about Austria-Hungary. But essentially what, what the Habsburgs agreed to do was to leave power in the, in the Hungarian half in the hands of the Hungarian nobility. Uh, and what the Hungarian nobility did was guarantee stability in that in, in that area. And then in the in the western half, what the Habsburgs permitted was a constitutional order to develop that over time became actually something very akin to a democracy within about 30 years. Uh, so this is a moment from which uh, the Habsburgs, who were dead set against any kind of constitutional rule in 1849, gradually gave into constitutional rule. But what it did is it throws a situation into place where the Hungarians uh, had autonomy within Habsburg uh, monarchy, whereas the other peoples did not. And that was a continuing problem. Mm-hmm. And it creates um, it creates certain tensions uh, in terms of, say, armament and military service and various things that sort of lead directly to another inflection point, uh, the First World War. Um, let's just fast forward to 1919. Uh, to 101 years ago and the Treaty of Versailles. So this is um, this is also another uh, sort of, um, this is another external force, imperial force, and this time in the, in the form of the victorious allies, right, uh, being brought to bear upon the uh, Eastern Yeah, Europe. so what, uh, what happens in the meantime is, is the rise of, of nationalism. When you have democracy, then you have the possibility of, of peoples sure. to represent themselves. The Habsburgs uh, couldn't uh, contest this force. They recognized it partly. They permitted the Czechs to elect their own deputies and the like. 
but they were also very scared about it. They were very scared of Serbia, in particular tiny Serbia. Yeah. And so the Habsburgs, you know, my argument is they actually launched World War One uh, in order to discipline Serbia because of yeah. the assassination in Sarajevo. They lost World War One along with Germany uh, and, and Bulgaria. Uh, and by 1918, the suffering had been so great, and um, you know the, the the inflexibility of the Habsburgs to offer autonomy um, um, to the nationalities was was so great that um, by late 1918 there was there was no chance of, of salvaging the monarchy. And you know, as as you say, then so new forces come in to to, to redraw the map and um, the, the major one um, most important ideologically was the United States um, led by Woodrow Wilson. Very curious. I mean, <laughs> a nation so far away, but as you make clear there, there there's a force of ideology that is very powerful uh, that's emanating from the United States. It's associated with Wilsonianism. Uh, so there's this, there's, there's this sense that America, yeah. that he, Wilson knew best for the rest of the world what what the, the fate of the world would be, and he believed in so-called national self-determination, so that if all peoples are. Go- I was thinking about about this, by the way, that Wilson is emblematic, though, of a generation which I mean, he didn't personally study in Germany, but he was at Johns Hopkins, who's surrounded by people well, who did or who had. He wrote a book um, about uh, is- the governments of, of, of the world, I believe. So he knew about Austria, yeah. he, he, but he, he didn't have specialized knowledge. He didn't know that there were Germans in Bohemia, for example. He didn't know how complex the map of Hungary was. And right. He really believed that you could take this idea of national self-determination and then transfer it to Eastern Europe and, and divide the, the peoples uh, by neat boundaries and, and go from there and have constitutions, elections, governments, and all of Eastern Europe would be like the United States of America. Um, and it didn't, it didn't work out that way. Uh, but uh, you know, a, lo- a large part of, of the blame to the failure of that interwar settlement, I think, goes back to his own his own um, self righteous ideological point of view and ignorance ignorance about the situation on the ground, which was, by the way, a point I make in the book, fostered by a man who later became a professor at UC Berkeley named Robert J. Kerner, the only person on the fact finding commission of Woodrow <laughs> yeah. Wilson who knew about Bohemia um, and the rest of Eastern Europe and who spoke Czech and spoke Polish. And, and and could read Croat was was a man uh, of, of American Czech background named Robert Kerner, and, and, and in essence, he- uh-huh. so you're not going to call it the current Robert Kerner the Robert Kerner Institute for East not, European not, Eurasian not, Slavic Studies at no, he's, he was, University he was, of California. Again, I mean, I, I, sh- I shouldn't uh, make light of this. These were men who operated within the limits yeah. of their time, and you know, so the fact that you could find only one person among a hundred advisors who knew anything about. Eastern Europe is indicative of the fact that in the U.S. at that time, there was very little expertise on the, on the region. And it's lucky that there was even one person who knew about right. it. Uh, so that, that, by the way, I think it helps justify what we call area studies, the study in, in institutes like mine of various regions in the world, not just Eastern Europe, but we really yeah. need this area knowledge if the United States is to be well, well led. Absolutely. It, but it does strike me that those who are there uh-huh. had a very Teutonic view why, of things. Why, why do you say that? I mean, since they... They they had been educated, but some some of the Wilson's friends and certainly his teachers had been educated in Germany, um, and were very um, Germanophilic prior to the First World War. Um, they might have had uh, not just a lack of knowledge, but then a very sort of very twisted perspective. Well, you on, know, on, I, my on view that, is that in, in that particular year, Germany's uh, you know Germany held no cards, and Germany got got no respect, and it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, there, no. there must have been prejudice in the part of some of the advisors at, at that point, but Germany got no breaks um, in, in, the, in that yeah. settlement. So that was part of the problem that led to the next war. So um, 
next war, in fact, um, Hitler coming to power. Um, the is how to say in five minutes the uh, the effect of of uh, of Nazism on um, Eastern Europe and upon this ethnic nationalism. Well, I, I would first address what, what I find interesting, and I find this interesting about World War One as well, is that it, it it's easy to imagine it not happening, right? You talked yeah. earlier about these uh, supposed ancient hatreds, and we now think of Nazism yeah. as something that sort of grew in, in some natural, necessary way out of World War One. World War One itself easily could not have happened if that assassination of 1914 hadn't happened, if the driver hadn't taken his wrong turn. But I always mm -hmm. think in terms of Hitler, that his, his rise to power uh, was absolutely necessary for the Nazi movement to, to succeed the way that it did, to, to follow through on, on, its, on its, its plans for war and, and for conquest. Uh, but without Hitler, there would have been no movement. When he was arrested in the 1920s, he disappeared from circulation. He was in prison for a few years. And the movement fell apart. And it only re, it regained strength when he mm -hmm. when he was released from prison. But then to gain power, uh, as the Nazis did by legal means in 1933, was a very very unlikely event. It was it was in the hands of uh, some intriguers in Berlin who, who had access to the very old President Hindenburg at that time, including Hindenburg's son, and then uh, mm -hmm. these um, infamous figures Franz von Papen and Kurt Schleicher. If it hadn't been for a very small group of, of conservatives. Uh, uh, reckless conservatives in Germany in 19 in January of 1933, and there's a very good book about this called Hitler's 30 Days to Power by Henry Adam Turner. Uh, uh, anybody who's any historian needs to read that book, even if they're you know they yeah, study uh, 19 late says, 19th century uh, California. Did not lead they to need Hitler. to read that book. I mean, Hitler's coming to power. Obviously, there were forces right. behind him, and he, he was he, he was not uh, managed everything by himself. But it, it, but it was it was really a very unlikely event. But once it happened, once. Once he was appointed chancellor, January 30th, 1933, by President von Hindenburg, then after that, he began gradually, uh, and not without opposition, not without challenges, realizing this long-term program of a racial war that was aimed against the Soviet Union. Um, and that then, uh, you know, by the, by the late 1930s, had, had engulfed Eastern Europe in, in war. Um, a war that did not, by the way, proceed the way that Hitler intended. He didn't intend for Poland to be an, uh, to be an enemy. He intended Poland to be an ally. Uh, and the reason that didn't happen is because the Polish elite said, no, in 1939, we're not going to band with you in, in, in the campaign against Bolshevism. Um, and, so, and, and so your question was, was about the effects of World War II upon the region. Uh, well, basically what... Yeah, right. Well, I, I think, I mean, it, it's uh, in a way we're being more specific. It's the effects of national socialism on the region and what national socialism did. I was just thinking as you're speaking, there were fascisms, of course, in Eastern Europe. Um, not just Mussolini, but um, I mean, there in in wasn't every Eastern there Slovakia. I mean, there could have been fascisms in Eastern European countries that did not have the effect that national socialism out of Germany had upon um, Eastern well, Europe. Well, you know, fascism as such, fascism was a dynamic uh, right radical movement that um, you know fostered the the power of one ethnic nation. Um, it requires a mass movement, strong leader, certain kinds of conditions and only two places yeah. produced a strong fascist movement in eastern europe and that was uh, romania and hungary and in both of those places the movement was then quashed uh -huh. by uh, by the authoritarian leaders by the by the regent horty in, uh, in in hungary and by king carol in romania so the interesting thing about eastern europe is that it actually was not a not a very good ground for fascism it was not a good it was also not not okay. good ground for democracy but what you find in the odd thing about fascism is that it actually grew uh -huh. out of conditions that democracy permitted. So it was the legality of Weimar, 
that made, made it possible for the for the Nazis mm-hmm. to rise. And it was the relative legality of the early 1920s in Italy mm-hmm. that permitted Mussolini to, to, to succeed. Whereas in Eastern Europe, democracy by and large failed mm-hmm. and non-democratic authoritarian leaders like Pilsudski, uh, like uh, Horty, they were they, they essentially, uh-huh. or King Alexander in Serbia, uh, Yugoslavia, they crushed the local fascist movements. Um, so I would agree that, that there was very strong nationalism, but not you, that, 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 that East Europe itself produced a very strong fascism. So you, you're not, so some, I, I've heard people refer to Pilsudski or Horty as fascists, fascists, yeah, technically, but I you think, would I think social uh, scientists uh, tend to think of, of, again, fascism as being a dynamic movement carried by um, uh, usually lower middle class, sometimes um um, working class support and and and, and um, in in the places in Eastern Europe where fascism grew to a large mass movement were places that had, with Germany and Italy, um, one thing in common, which was that which was which was which was a sense among uh, the, the masses of the population that the liberal elites of those countries who 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 were like people of 1848 in favor of constitutional rule, that when they took power, they had no time for the average working class people. Um, so what that produces is the word that I use mm-hmm. in the book to describe this is populism. So what you see in, in, in Germany, uh, in Italy, in Hungary, uh, in Romania is are the seeds for, for populism, namely this neglect by uh, the governing liberal elites of the masses of the population. You see this, by the way, also in the last 10 or 15 years, also in Hungary and Poland, um, arguably in Austria, France, even in the United States, the supporters of populism tend to be uh, people of working class, lower class background who feel that the liberal elites in distant cities don't care about them. So that's what I say in Eastern Europe, the, the, the two places. And, and, and by the way, the, the argument is that they care, but they don't care about us um, in, in, so, in a social sense, but also in an ethnic sense. Right, and I, I developed the argument mm-hmm. further in the book, but there was an, there, there was an argument among Romanian fascists do. that the Romanian uh, liberal elites didn't care mm-hmm. about the Romanian nation as well as the Romanian working people. So that opened the door. So I, I technically, mm-hmm. no, Horty and, and King Carol do not count as fascists, nor does Petrucci himself in Poland was in okay. fact a, uh, a former um, socialist who, um, who, who, who crushed the very, the very small... Yeah. Polish fat. There was a Polish fascist movement, and he was not a friend of that movement. So the result, of course, of all this is the utter destruction of uh, places and peoples of Eastern Europe. Um, uh, the Red Army uh, by 1945, and, and much of another contingent point is how far the Red Army is able to advance before the the fall of of, of Nazi Germany. Um, mo- just about all of Eastern Europe, no, Eastern Europe, with the exception—well, not even the exception of Austria. After all, Vienna is occupied as well uh, by the Red Army, and and that sets us up for the next forty plus years of uh, life in Eastern Europe. So, what does Sovietization do to Eastern Europe? Well, it puts it under, under in deep freeze in a sense. I mean, the, the, there could be no uh, no local nationalism, certainly not of a virulent uh, kind uh, during Stalinism. So, those are the years. 1947-48, the beginnings of the Cold War, till about 1954-55. In Hungary, you couldn't even talk about the, the rights of the Hungarian uh, nation in those years. So all of the region in those years, mm-hmm. so the Stalinist years, again, 1947 to 1954, uh, more or less 55, were subjected to the same sorts of measures 
that the Soviet Union itself was subjected to um, in the 1930s. So heavy industrialization, uh, massive purging, uh, imposition of party ideology, uh, collectivization of agriculture, um, uh, in many cases, the crushing of, of, of churches, uh, made essentially into replicas of the Soviet Union. And uh, the idea was that East European states had, 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 had to subordinate their national interests to the cause of socialism. Changes a bit after 1956, um, after Nikita Khrushchev denounces Stalin as, as a criminal, essentially um, reveals Stalin's crimes. After that point, it becomes possible throughout the region for uh, the East European states to, to uh, put forward some kind of nationalism, some kind of sense that the Communist Party represents the nation. Mm -hmm. And that happens in, in, in a very limited form across the map um, in differing interesting ways. Um, the most extreme form being uh, Romania, where the by the late 1960s, a, a leader emerges who, who is uh, overtly nationalist. That's Nicolae Ceausescu, um, much more subtle in Hungary. Um, there's a leader who emerges there after 1956 named Janos Kadar. His idea of the, the interest of the Hungarian nation is to promote economic reform, which is very interesting. Um, so, uh, but but you know, over the, over all those 40 years, there, there's there's no room for virulent ethnic nationalism. Um, I, I must. Um, uh, note that there's one exception to this this, this idea of the Soviet Union um, uh, occupying Eastern Europe, and that's Yugoslavia, because the, Soviet, the, the Red Army did not occupy Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was created by uh, the right. communist-led yeah. partisans under uh, Marshal uh, Tito um, uh, and, and, and went its own way. Um, Tito broke from Stalin in 1948 um, and then um, um, presided over a relatively, you know, from perspective of the rest of Eastern relatively rational reformist uh, socialism for uh, a number of years. And by the strength of his uh, control over the party, his, his charisma, and the force of his followers, the partisan uh, veterans of the partisan army, also kept nationalism under check um, until he died. Uh, and then it, it found ways of reasserting itself in, in the 1980s in a time of crisis. Uh, so that would be an exception. Um, but um, nobody suspected in the 1980s that uh, there would be this kind of virulent nationalism of the 1990s. So where did it come from? Well, uh, fear. I mean, this is generally my, my, my take uh, on fascism as well and on populism is that if a, a leader can emerge who promises to use uh, nationalism um, to protect the, uh, the so-called people, um, and suggest that the people is under siege, under attack from some other group, um, be it an imperialist entity. Uh, Nikolai Ceausescu, who himself was a virulent nationalist, suggested that in, in, in some odd way, uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, was a historic enemy of Romania. Uh, but in Yugoslavia, uh, the suggestion was that uh, in the late 1980s, it was uh, the Muslims in Kosovo, a very small group that were threatening the Serbs in Yugoslavia with extinction, with genocide. Uh, and this, this was the argument used by uh, Slobodan Milosevic to, to create a mass movement, um, which was called people power in the late 1980s, um, reflecting or, or, or echoing what was happening in the Philippines. If you recall, that was the time that Ferdinand Marcos was under assault by a, a mass mm -hmm. movement. So yeah. what the dictator, later dictator Milosevic did is he, he, he gathered together tens of thousands of his own followers and asserted um, kind of, you know, popular dictatorship, one can call it, in, in, in Serbia by the late 1980s, thereby frightening 
uh, and alienating populations of the other Yugoslav republics. So, uh, oh, and fear um, deriving in large part from um, sustained economic crisis, uh, very high inflation um, in the 1980s in Yugoslavia, uh, and an inability of, of anybody to um, establish strong leadership and suggest a way out. Uh, so this left the road open to this nationalist demagogue, uh, who himself Milosevic was in fact not a nationalist. He was mm -hmm. he was a Communist Party functionary, uh, who who simply re he recognized mm -hmm. the power yeah. of the nationalist uh, argument to to, to uh, enhance his own personal power, and that's what he did. And I mean, in a milder form, it's always it always struck me at the time um, so interesting and odd that the Czechs and Slovaks just absolutely had to part. Um, uh, I didn't see why. Why was it so important that Czechoslovakia no, was broken up? But it was important uh, to them. Um, it, well, it was yeah, I, was, without violence, I was living in but, Prague at the yeah. time, and um, well, the thing that frustrated everybody who, okay. who liked the idea of Czechoslovakia for some reason, I guess, as an American liberal, I liked the idea yeah. of Czechoslovakia because it was non-nationalist. There was never, there was never a referendum. There was never right, a, exactly. you know, there was never a moment where the Czechs and Slovaks could could vote on the future of Czechoslovakia. Why? Because there were democratic elections bringing to power um, Slovak and Czech politicians who had no interest in a referendum questioning their hold on power. And they founded more, especially in Slovakia, there was a group that emerged that uh, found it more um, advantageous to pursue this nationalist uh, rhetoric and, and claim that Slovakia was misunderstood and discriminated against and a victim of, of, of Czech power and the like. And Slovakia needed uh, sovereignty. Slovakia had been betrayed. And often these politicians were from families who had a history uh, going back to World War, World War II, were involved in the, um, the, the, the Nazi-created Slovak puppet state of, of, of World War II. And so, uh, again, um, as in Yugoslavia, there were, there, there were, there were politicians who saw uh, under the conditions of an opening political uh, spectrum, they saw um, advantages in pursuing the nationalist argument. And um, there was a, on the Czech side, there was a politician named Václav Klaus who, who thought he could do better in a set and he, he would in fact have more, more, more control and, and uh, more leverage for economic, uh, the economic policies, the liberal economic policies that he wanted to perform uh, if he were separated from mm. uh, Slovakia. So basically the politicians in uh, the po political elites in the Czech and the Slovak side agreed to split um, peacefully in 1992. Uh, they mm. actually split in January of 1993. Um, and the, the splitting was peaceful because there's, there, was, there was no contested territory. There was no territory... Uh, that either side went from the other, and um, there, there were some Slovaks living in the Czech lands, but uh, there, there was no, there were no minorities uh, of Slovaks uh, living in the Czech lands in the way that there were minorities uh, of, um, say, Croats living in Bosnia or Serbs living in Croatia, which made the Yugoslav breakup so so violent. You have a certain uh, unique perspective on nationalism. Um, you carefully give your uh, differences be, uh, between the ideas of yourself and Eric Hobbesbaum and Benedict Anderson. Um, very daring of you, but um, very refreshing. Could you, um, could you describe your sort of perspective on nationalism, your, your definition or perhaps refusal to have a, co uh, a massive definition? Right. Well, I, you know, nationalism? obviously like everybody who, who um, 
reads about nationalism. I have enormous respect for both of these figures, uh, but their perspective indeed was one of, of a global um, global extent, and uh, the desire in both cases is, is, is to find a discussion, a description that will in some ways contain, embrace all the nationalisms that have emerged uh, throughout history, uh, especially modern history, and I, I think that for that reason, they tend to neglect what is uh, specific and, and special about the East European case. So in the case of Benedict Anderson, he also coming from a Marxist perspective, um, focuses on the rise of uh, what he calls print capitalism to produce the, the, the conditions that make nationalism possible. Uh, whereas in, in Eastern Europe, you, you have um, in certain regions, I haven't said much about the, the Serb case, but there was actually a very strong Serb sense of national identity that even preceded um, uh, literacy. So obviously, print capitalism uh, was not was not crucial. There was a, there was an, a heritage going back centuries. This is a bit different from the Habsburg story I was talking about earlier, of um, Serbs singing epic poetry mm. um, uh, throughout the Serb lands, um, basically mm. telling heroic stories about the heroes of the Serb Middle Ages, uh, and you know it's, it's been said by historians that the Serbs didn't need to be told by German philosophers. Uh, about nationalism. They, they knew about nationalism and they knew who they were uh, in the 19th century. And very quickly, what you see happening when um, there are Serb uprisings against Ottoman rule is as soon as it's possible to demand autonomy, Serbs do so. So that the Anderson perspective, um, you know, with this, this, this sense of a scheme, of a historical scheme that aligns with the development of capitalism does not fit that case very well. And, and, and indeed, the Anderson case does, doesn't Anderson's approach does, doesn't explain the power of the national idea. Doesn't really, I think, give full full uh, recognition of, of of the importance of that idea. In the case of Hobsbawm too, I, I think that so he he says rightly that you know language is not impossible is not is not um, necessary for nationalism across uh, the globe. There are many cases in which language is secondary, uh, but that's not the case in Eastern Europe. Language is was. Or, or by the way, for Northern uh -huh. Ireland, the Irish case, the place where I'm living right now, I mean, I see a lot of parallels in Ireland. Eastern Europe is not uh -huh. unique. And in fact, I'm sure if you were to take subject of nationalism uh, to other parts of the world, you would see that language and culture are very important. But I, I think that Hobsbawm and, and Anderson, in attempting to embrace the, the phenomenon as a whole, missed, missed some of the important specificities. And if you go with, with their understanding of nationalism to Eastern Europe, there are things that you'll miss. Let's talk about the construction of this book um we were when we were exchanging emails um earlier you said you hadn't seen it yet uh it's a big book uh -huh. it, it could hurt some people's wrists uh it's also i should say quickly that when i i pick you know pull it out of the package that princeton sent me i immediately started to read it and kept on reading it in in bed like a novel um it was that captivating so um people shouldn't be afraid of it because of its size but how did you what compelled you to complete this book? I mean, it's that it must be a strong compulsion to keep on working well, it, on a was, big book uh, like this. So, for me, having taught the, uh, a course on 20th century Eastern Europe for a long time, it, the 20th century came relatively easy to me in the book, and that, that, that's not that's a, maybe a bit more than half mm -hmm. the book. Uh, but it was trying to trying to figure out how to mm -hmm. account yeah. for the 20th century. One of my in academia, uh, one of the great things is you get anonymous criticism of, of your manuscript. And I got, I got some criticism from a colleague uh, at Chapel Hill who said that the book, he didn't find the book had an, had an argument. And I thought, well, how can history have an argument? Um, and uh, but then it occurred to me that if there is an argument, it's about this, the strength of this, this phenomenon of, uh, 
of, of, of nationalism as, as, as an argument made about politics, uh, strength of the nationalist discourse over many generations. And I guess I became very curious to try to explain where that came from. Uh, and that's what um, you know caused me to, to devote actually much more time on the 19th century and in the, the 18th century to figure out what it was that stimulated uh, these national movements that that that, uh, that grew from the late 18th century. It was a, in some ways a historical puzzle. I wanted to um, fully account for why um, what we call the nation, what East Europeans call the people. Um, connected by language and history and culture, why this became so precious in many people's minds and why it became such a, an effective and sometimes almost exclusive weapon of political combat involving even Marxists. So that by the late 19th century, if you were a working class representative following Karl Marx in Prague and you didn't also address the national issue, you would get nowhere. Uh, so that social democrats themselves became became in, in fact quite nationalist in a much different sense than people further to the right, but you couldn't ignore it. So I think that's that's what what kept me going is to, is to try, try to really flesh out that story and and and, and uh, account for the growth of the idea and the way that it traveled over the decades in in, in various events and in various political movements and and and, and ideas. And people. So I, I do mention a few people. Thomas Masaryk is if there's a hero in the book. There's, there's no pure hero, but he's the one person uh, that I find fascinating because his wife was American and he, he was actually very, very fluent in American history. He um, was quite progressive and he called his political party, this is the Czech, first president of Czechoslovakia, called his political party progressive. But he also harnessed nationalism for, I think, tolerant and liberal, tolerant and liberal agenda. So he's one of the people that I find carrying this idea, not flawless by any means. Uh, some ways he was he was a uh, authoritarian figure in the interwar years, uh, but there are other figures as well um, who ca- who carried this idea. So that that's what I, I think what what drove me was to tell a full story, and, and I think the book now it's not only a history but it's a story uh, story of, 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 of a set of peoples over a, uh, in a certain period. And I, I guess I felt I couldn't I couldn't rest until I, I had um, begun the story and brought it as close as possible to the present. It's a big book. There are a lot of footnotes. Um, I, I, sorry to ask this really a mechanical question, but how do you keep track of all your Well, notes? I have to say technology makes it not, not as difficult as, as it once was. So, you know, you create a bibliography, you, you hold on to the bibliography and oh. then you, you, Oh, one thing that's important is that as you read and learn, and I've learned from scores of other historians, um, you have to have to always be very careful to note where you got a certain insight from. And I was so when I take notes, I, I, I there are even more footnotes in the notes that I take from books that I'm reading or documents that I'm reading. Uh, but you know, modern modern word processing and technology makes it possible to to, to hold on to the onto that information. Um, so it's in fact it's not as challenging. I think I, I would really wonder is how people dealt with these these challenges on you know fifty years ago and uh, when we all use typewriting. Yeah, well, lots of. Yes, that's Lots right. Three by five People were very cards. good at collecting. I started with with um, three by five and other kinds of cards in the archives. So I, I recall that time. But uh, but no, these days it's the uh, I'm not a. And do you just keep everything in one word process? Do you keep everything in one word file? No, I would or, go by, I mean, by, by, uh, by chapter, and then I'd break down the chapters. Um, so there was an eight, there was an, you know there, there was a 
it was a moment wow. at which I was reading a lot on 1848, and I, I would keep all the information within that that chapter or subchapters. Or um, you know, I, I do an unusual thing in the book, which I, I, I group together Serb and Polish nationalism uh, early in the book. And so I'd be reading everything on the Serb insurrections, the Polish insurrections. Yeah. I call them insurrectionary nationalisms, um, and they would all, it would all come together. It was it was actually pretty manageable. Um, You'd already figured out what your chapters were. And then you would be reading uh, for each well, chapter, I, I taking notes in the for that chapter. As I went along, and I figured out um, 1848 was very obvious. Um, wasn't as obvious how to do the Czech national movement uh, yeah. because it extends across the century. Wasn't as obvious how to do the Hungarian national movement. I spent a lot of time reading about theater in the Hungarian case, which was very important. Um, but one 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 uh, chapter that I figured out only later on was 1878, um, which was the creation of, of of several new states growing out of uh, conflict in Bosnia. So that was a completely new chapter that emerged only when I realized that 1878, the Congress of Berlin, the creation of Romania, uh, Bulgaria, um, and uh, Serbia uh, Mon and Montenegro, that this was a very important turning point. So that out of that group then grew a chapter. Huh. So so then it's it's. So you weren't, um, you didn't have a sort of a master chart of all your chapters on a corkboard or something like that. You were basically always shuffling things around like cards well, I have to, and, and yeah, adding I have to a new card to the also deck. To my, to my editor at Princeton, Brigitte van Reinberg, who I, she saw an earlier version of the, uh, of the book and some of the chapters were just too long. You know, for example, I would have linguistic nationalism. It was just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. and, um, so she, 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 she's the, huh. above all convinced me that, you know, chapters ha have to really have a strong coherence. So I, so I spent some time figuring out how to take some larger chunks of text and, and, and how to uh, restructure them in, in, into what were um, more coherent, readable uh, uh, chapters, and chapters indeed. So she's extremely good. Uh, if anybody ever, ever has a chance to work with Brigitte, I recommend it. Your style is, is great and interesting and, and very clear. Do you Who do you read in order to oh, uh, be a difficult. better writer? Uh, question. Um, yeah, I like to read, uh, you know, some of the great uh, uh, narrative historians, um, like James Sheehan, for example, at Stanford. Um, um, some of the um, Austrian uh -huh. historians. Um, I obviously read read a, a fair, a fair amount of fiction as well. Oh yeah, do what do you, what, what sort of fiction do you read? In recent uh, days, I've been reading uh, Irish Irish fiction because I'm visiting here in Ireland. So there's a guy named McLaverty. I like yeah. uh, 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 Toybin. Um, yeah. been reading. Um, I like William Trevor uh, very much. Um, um, I don't know if you know William Trevor's. Yeah. No, I, I'm looking forward to but finding out about own, him now. I'll put I, him in the show I love reading um, the prose of uh, Czesław Miłosz um, from, from my from East European story. Um, uh -huh. the novels of Milan Kundera, which I assigned to my, to my students. Uh, also, the work uh -huh. of Ivo Andrich. I used to, is extremely good, Nobel, Nobel Prize winning uh, from Bosnia. I co-taught a course uh -huh. um, on Yugoslavia for many years with a colleague who was a specialist in, uh, Yugos in South Slav literature. Um, so the, the, those, those are very uh -huh. important. Um, and, uh, oh, I, I, I have to mention some of the, the great German uh, uh, narrative historians, French novel, <laughs> won't be well known to American audiences, but a author of a four volume history mm -hmm. of German, uh, of Germany. And next to, I mentioned, uh, James Sheehan, there's another German author named Thomas Nipperdai, who wrote a uh, fabulous three volumes on, on Germany. 
Um, I like re reading work of my colleague named Andrew Janos, who's a political scientist who's written a um, big book on, um, on East Central Europe from the perspective of political science. Um, I like reading actually the British author Norman uh, Davies, who's written on, on Poland. Um, and that's, it was an int yeah. introduction to me. Um, yeah. I like reading Norman Neymark, uh, who's also a, a colleague at Stanford, has written very widely um, on, on Eastern Europe um, and has a sense for what's very important. He's written about ethnic cleansing. Um, but it, it's, 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 it's a list that, that, that goes on and on. And, and please do have a look at the footnotes. Uh, yeah. But those are some people I would, I would, I would, I would. To conclude our conversation, um, my wife and I were walking, uh, taking a hike the other day and we were along a field in the, in the, in the woods where the field in the woods met. And I observed her. I, I don't know who I heard this from. The edges are always interesting. Um, in the ecology that you've got at the edge of the, of the field and the edge of the woods is where the animals of the field and the insects of the field and the plants meet all those of the woods. So you've got twice as many or however many that is, they all mingle there. Um, it struck me reading this book that Eastern Europe is one of the ultimate edges, um, in human ecology. Um, it's where the field and the woods meet. Um, you obviously find it fascinating um, is is that why well, you, know, you find it? It's great that you explained uh, this named. question um, the way you just did. Because what it, what occurs to me is that Eastern Europe is is is, is a series of edges. It's it's an edge of of the east of uh, of Europe mm. um, in, in some ways, but it's also the edge of what was the Russian Empire in in the west, and it's also the edge of the Ottoman Empire in the west. Right, and so what you have coming together mm -hmm. are influences of three, four, five, and more cultures in one space, because it's the edges of, it's the furthest reaches to the mm -hmm. to the east or to the west of, of differing cultural, economic, political, ideological influences. The, the the role of socialism, for example, the fact that Marxism-Leninism would be brought right to Central Europe, that's that that made the region fascinating for me. But it also, if you're interested in architecture, it's the area where you can go very far to the east. You can go to Lithuania and find uh, Baroque and really wonderful Baroque architecture, uh, as well as Gothic architecture. Uh, and you find a population that very unlike populations um, elsewhere is, is cognizant of those different traditions. So if you read again, that I mentioned earlier, Czesław Miłosz, um, Polish writer in Polish who was from Lithuania, very complex background, who grew up speaking French, uh, never knew a time when, when um, French was not spoken in his home of friend, I'm sorry, of Polish noble background. I mean, you, you have a convergence of traditions and all sensitivity to complexity, which is interesting because of the force of ethnic nationalism. In fact, what, what it produced, um, a hundred years ago was a group of, was an intellectual elite that was multilingual and, uh, felt as, as, as at home in Paris, as it often did in St. Petersburg, uh, or areas uh, of, of Italy, Trieste, for example, a very uh, complex area. So it's an area of, of mm -hmm. complexity that over time produced forces that, that, that uh, seem to, to favor simplicity. But what, again, I, I suppose what fascinates me is the way that the edges in some ways came together and created a, you know, a, a, an effect like you have in um, geometry when you have these various circles coming together, right? And there's, 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 there's an intensity when the circles come together at that very moment of the edges of all those circles from, from their various perspectives. So, um, um, as I said earlier, so from, it's the furthest Eastern point of the West, but the furthest Western point of the East, that's, I think what makes it 
uh, fascinating, uh, culturally, politically, uh, and uh, um, in other ways as well. Yes, yes, certainly. So personally, it's a great place to be a tourist. Yeah. Also, my guest today has been John Connolly. He's the author, most recently, of From Peoples into Nations, A History of Eastern Europe, which is available now from Princeton University Press. John Connolly, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking to me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 